very good. This is rolling, I think. Yes. Okay. It's a great pleasure to welcome you to this interview with Patrick Deere. Um, my name is Christine Toft. I'm a PhD student at the University of Southern Denmark and a member of the research group The Aesthetics of Late Modern War. As part of our work, we, the research group, interview researchers working on war and culture in the 21st century and we release these interviews as podcasts. And today's guest is Patrick Deere. Patrick Deere is Associate Professor of English at New York University. His work focuses on war, and war culture and war literature, modernism and contemporary British and American literature and culture. In his first book, Culture and Camouflage, War, Empire and Modern British Literature from 2009, Patrick Deere explores the emergence of modern war culture in the first half of the 20th century. At the moment, Patrick Deere is working on two book projects. The first one has the working title Deep England, Forging British Culture After Empire, and it focuses on the second half of the 20th century and explores tropes of violence, consumption, secrecy, descent, and nostalgia in a national literature and culture that, argues Deere, has resisted decline and decolonization between 1944 and 79. The other book project, and that's the book we're going to discuss here today, is titled We Are All Embedded, Understanding America's War Culture Since 9-11. In, his book, in this book, Deere explores contemporary U.S. war culture and focuses in particular on literature, film, and media from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And this book will likely come out in 2020. Um, and Patrick Deere has already published a number on articles drawing on the work that's going to be in the book. Um, and I should also mention that Patrick Deere is one of the organizers of NYU's Cultures of War and Post-War Research Collaborative, which also aims to contribute to the debate around war today. So, welcome. Thank you, Christine. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm excited to, um, to be doing the podcast. Yes, so let's get to it. So first of all, I would love to hear what inspired you to start working on We Are All Embedded. Well, uh, this book um, was partly inspired uh, um, uh, by the research I'd done, uh, mainly on World War II uh, war culture, um, in my previous book, Culture and Camouflage. and. I've been struck uh, living in New York uh, since um, the September uh, 11th um, terrorist attacks uh, by the fact that on the one hand uh, America has been at war uh, for nearly two decades but on the other hand in stark contrast with previous wars, World War One. World War II especially in the US and in Europe, there's a, a really profound lack of either um, persuasive official narratives or narratives in popular memory for these wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, uh, and um, on the other hand, having written about World War II uh, war culture, uh, I 
pose the question, well, have we been living in a war culture since 9-11? I think we really have, but it's very different from uh, the kinds of war cultures that emerged uh, in the middle of the 20th century. Um, and I'll just explain for a minute what I mean by war culture. So um, uh, one of my arguments in the first book was that uh, in a time of national crisis in Britain during World War II, uh, there was a huge effort to, to construct and mobilize a seductive and persuasive official war culture. And what do war cultures do? They say to us as citizens, look, this conflict is too big, it's too traumatic, it's too vast. It, in the case of World War II, this is a second world war. Um, uh, this is too much for you individual situ uh, as individual citizens in your own situations to make sense of. Well, don't worry, the official war culture will represent the war to you and you need to learn to be uh, represented in a certain way uh, by the official war culture. Um, now, uh, I think in many ways we continue to live with the historical echoes of these, um, uh, of the um, war culture of World War II, and we can see how they're mobilized during national crises as they were the sort of Churchillian myth after 9-11. And even now, unfortunately, we don't have to get into it, uh, in, um, around the, the national crisis of Brexit in Britain, World War II is being continually in, evoked. Well, by contrast, even though there are these tremendously long wars um, from 2001 into the present in Afghanistan, uh, 2003, well officially until 2011 in Iraq, that have um, been enormously devastating and costly in terms of human life, uh, trauma, the economic, devastating economic impact, both in the US, especially of course in Iraq and Afghanistan, and the repercussions in the global refugee crisis. So, you know, how have how have uh, American citizens been living? Have they been, um, how have they been experiencing these wars? Have, have they been living in a culture of war? And I think the answer is yes, but if, if we have been living in a war culture, it's clearly very different from World War mm. II um, or the Cold War, for instance, or even the Vietnam War era in, in the US. It's very strange, low-intensity, dispersed logic. So I think my inspiration was to try and understand, you know, w what we've been living uh, with. How is it that these wars have been represented to um, citizens and um, veterans and... Uh, all sorts of different people and um, you know how have uh, individual writers, intellectuals, veterans, um, anti-war activists, organizers sought to find their own perspective on these wars mm -hmm. uh, to, to, um, to make sense of this and try and come together to 
deal with the devastating after effects, uh, to break the silences around these wars. Yeah. yeah, and we definitely have to talk about the difference in war culture from previous wars and then this wars, but maybe I could ask you to say a little bit more about the main argument of the book, and I guess that would also speak to why it, in your opinion, is really important to write about and discuss war culture in the 21st century? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And, um, you know, it's, uh, I think it's very much a collaborative effort. So it's great to be talking to you as a uh, researcher on um, 21st century war culture too. So, well, the book has um, several main arguments. Um, I suppose the through line uh, asks, okay, how is it that on the one hand we've all been embedded in war, um, it's become a commonplace, at least in the US, uh, to refer to the forever war era. It's almost as if we live in an entirely normalized state of war and um, in talking to my uh, students and younger people especially, it's striking to think that they've grown up now, uh, current undergraduates, um, uh, with this kind of normalized situation of very distant conflicts, but then in some ways the traces of these wars can be um, rendered visible uh, everywhere. So on the one hand, what my book does is ask, all right, how have these wars been represented to us and for us? Um, and one of my, uh, um, and I think there are these dominant tropes uh, that very often have a distancing effect. Um, uh, and the challenge is to bridge these distant war zones and try and make sense of the um, corrosive, damaging effects of militarization at home. So one dominant early way in which the wars were represented um, was through the embedding of media in the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And um, that's where I get the, um, my title, We Are All Embedded. Um, which in a sense is just saying, look, we think these wars are far away. They really don't have anything to do with most of us. Um, uh, in the US, it's an all-volunteer military now. It's about 1.6 million men and women in un uniform have served in these uh, wars and in the global war on terror, as it's called. But that's actually um, a fairly tiny fraction of the overall US population, which is 300 million. You know, so it's, it's sort of less than 1% of the population. Um, one way in which the wars were represented through embedded media uh, was through uh, a very carefully framed and highly aestheticized version of war. Um, and one thing I explore is the way that embedded journalists, um, who were often in quite dangerous situations, but they were deployed within military units and they depended for their security 
on the uh, military units of soldiers they were with, and they were required to um, go along with um, uh, military requirements of operational uh, security. On the one hand, it, it turned the invasion of Iraq into this amazing spectacle of war, a panoramic spectacle. We were only getting tiny slices of the action, and they were very, it, it was an amazingly successful um, program. It was nearly 600 journalists in the invasion. But e even more successful than the scale of it, I think, was just the way our um, relation, the media's relationship to the military was quite profoundly changed at that point. Military um, successfully embedded the media. Um, and then you had war reporters who start, in many cases, you read some excellent books like Dexter Filkins, The Forever War, Evan Wright, Generation Kill, uh, for instance. But you you encounter when you read these, these passages of what I call um, despicable beauty. Uh, there's an aestheticization. It's almost as if war reporters now have to show scenes, um, uh, a beautiful spectacle of war. They often involve uh, vulnerable um, bodies of people of color, Iraqi, Afghan, women and children, sometimes uh, dead bodies. Um, but they're represented in a very aestheticized way, um, as if the war reporters um, have borrowed the techniques traditionally used by war poets going back to World War One, and um, uh, are involved in presenting a very um, sort of beautified and sanitized version of war. Um, I call it in my book the embedded sublime in the sense that it gives us some of the satisfactions of um, the poetic sublime. It's very poeticized, but I also argue that what happens when we, and, and you know, listeners may well have had this experience if they've watched a recent war movie or even encountered, you know, a really shocking photograph, um, an image from uh, these wars or maybe from the global refugee crisis where you see you know, a very powerful image, you experience this sensory overload that Kant talks about in relation to the sublime. And yet I don't think this kind of embedded version of the war is really asking much of us as um, spectators or readers, we, you often hear people say, well, what can I do? And I call that a sort of ethical hesitation. And um, in other words, you know you should be responding to this spectacle of warfare in some way, but the way it's presented to us, we're really not being asked to do anything either ethically or politically, except to behold the spectacle. And I think that's really, you know, extremely problematic. Uh, and if you can make lots of people hesitate, then there's, there can be real world impacts uh, to that. 
So in my book, what I do is I chart some of the ways, the tropes through which uh, the war is presented to us, maybe through high-tech, air-powered drone warfare, or the hyper-masculine spectacle of special forces warfare uh, we get in a film like American Sniper, for instance. Um, and uh, I look at the ways that writers and intellectuals, citizens, have very often got together, collaborative, and they've sought ways to push back against this mm -hmm. embedding of war in our everyday lives. Um, and and uh, there are all sorts of different dimensions to this. Um, and it just poses a really interesting question that I know, Christine, you are engaging in your own work, which is when you're up against such a powerful but dispersed, as I've mentioned before, low-intensity war culture, it's very pervasive, but often it, it, it creates silences. It's happening in pockets at the edges of our lives. How do we make this visible? And how do we, as scholars, as intellectuals, or as writers or artists, push back against this logic? You know, what sort of strategies are available to us? Um, really to reveal that we, yeah, we are all embedded and we need to do something about it. It's very urgent, not just, it's not just a scholarly or theoretical problem. This is a, a political um, and ethical problem. Um, uh, so, you know, what are we going to do about it? And I have various examples of projects that have sought to push back against that. So would you, would you argue that aesthetics in a way can help to push back or is aesthetic also the aesthetic representations of all, can they also be sort of, um, what do you say, complicit in, yeah. in, in sort of obscuring the fact that we are actually living in a war culture? Yeah, I think that's a really ac excellent question, that goes to the heart of it. Um, I think that, in a way, yes, aesthetics have already been co-opted uh, in quite a brilliant and insidious way by the, um, you know, by the, the war machine. Um, but just because violence can be aestheticized, just because embedding, just because a media can be embedded, um, it doesn't mean we should give up on it. So. Actually, very often you see writers using aesthetics, using uh, the poetics of violence to reveal this kind of manipulation um, and uh, to push back against it. So, for instance, there are, I, I think there are some really good examples of, um, you know, war reporting uh, that... Uh, sort of acknowledged the pull towards beautifying war, but resisted at the same time. There's a great um, uh, little book of reportage by uh, an embedded journalist called Nick McDonnell. Uh, uh, he's called Nick McDonnell, and his book is The End of Major Combat Operations. Um, I also think you see a lot of poets um, who have really wrestled with this problem of the 
implication of aesthetics. Um, very important early war, uh, Iraq war poet Brian Turner. Um, his recent um, memoir, My Life as a Foreign Country, really wrestles with these questions of complicity. It's a beautiful book, but it's also uh, intensely aware of the, the risks of aestheticizing violence. And very often there's a kind of palimpsestic approach that, you know, contemporary war writers um, in the US, also in Britain and Europe, I think are aware just how many layers of history there are. Um, and another example is a, a colleague of mine at NYU, um, uh, Sinan Antoon, who's uh, written a brilliant critique of the way that um, um, literature can get embedded within sort of military and imperialist discourses. His own work, um, he has a wonderful book called The Corpse Washer. Uh, there's also the book of Collateral Damage um, that he's published. Um, uh, again, you, it's sort of using the power of it, the aesthetic, to push back against this kind of um, uh, co-optation. And I think in a different register, uh, some early short stories by Siobhan Fallon, uh, her short story collection, you know where um, the men have gone, where she draws on other kinds of genres. Uh, often in very beautiful and moving descriptions of everyday life, military spouses on military bases, just the damage wrought. Um, I think there's um, uh, the same is true, uh, you know, trauma discourse has got co-opted in certain ways, but we shouldn't give up on aesthetics or trauma. They're really important resources. I think literature, um, you know, uh, film, uh, other media really have an important role to play in critiquing this kind of logic. Yeah, and you said before that there is something about this contemporary war culture that's characterized by low intensity, so maybe you could hear as a last answer to the last question, yeah. say something about how this contemporary war culture differs from previous war cultures. Yeah, I mean, uh, in many ways um, it is quite different, and there, but I would say there's a potential trap in assuming that everything has changed. And I think that's why contemporary war writing is constantly going back to earlier wars to try and make sense of uh, the present. I'm thinking, for instance, of Christopher Nolan's film Dunkirk, which very, very much seems to be about the present. So I think that the important thing is to approach contemporary war culture in terms of both discontinuity and difference and continuity because I think in many ways um, this although the the dynamics of our own war cultures um, are different from earlier wars which were total wars they involved the whole population nevertheless they're still um, 
there's still that sort of structural positioning of us as citizens, as readers, as audience members, which is sort of, you know, what war cultures want to do is colonize the entire cultural field, and they want to claim a monopoly on representing uh, the conflict. It's just that the narratives available are weirdly fragmented. I mean, obviously, a key difference has to do with our relationship to technology, you know, and the temptation is to say, oh, yeah, well, we're living in the internet era and we've got all this high tech technologies of violence like drone warfare, surveillance, everything's changed. Well, no, actually, because in many ways, um, the use, the US use of drone warfare um, globally. Uh, um, draws quite powerfully on very traditional colonialist forms of air power. They go back to the air policing, as the British called it, of um, Mesopotamia after World War uh, I, Mesopotamia being modern-day Iraq. Uh, and this, this sort of imperialist um, fantasy of air power that somehow we we're in a highly technologized present. The targets of our military belong to um, some kind of earlier stage of civilization. And, uh, you know, the military is laying claim to the future. Um, and uh, there's a sort of fantasy about um, Western military technology that you can actually discipline and control enemy territories using um, technology. Um, you know, and that also, um, uh, that also sort of bounces back to the domestic situation as well. I'd say one thing that does make it particularly challenging to work on contemporary war culture is just, is the disconnect between, um, you know, the, uh, the home front where is the home front or the homeland of these recent wars? It has a very fugitive, fragmented existence and the distant war zones. Um, and I think we're very lucky in some ways to be living, uh, you know, um, in an era where you have um, sort of, trend, you know, you, you have a trans transnational resistance um, movement, say, um, uh, protest movement like uh, Black Lives Matter, which has made connections between the use of military force in the war zones and then the use of all this military technology, paramilitary policing of communities of color in the US and asserting solidarity between the distant war zone and home. So one of the challenges is to make these connections but I think there is this very vibrant body of, um, uh, you know, of work, of art, literature, film, and scholarly activity, um, uh, and also, you know, collaborative um, move projects. Um, as, uh, as Phil Cly said when he was accepting the National Book Award, he was talking about trauma and veteran suicide in the US. He said, this is too important a conversation to have on your own. 
And I think one of the really cheering and salutary things about um, the present moment, and it's, you know, here you are from a scholarly um, group, a research group in uh, Denmark, talking to me in New York, is that there's uh, collaborative um, projects, uh, whether they're literary or aesthetic or theatrical or scholarly, you know, they really are producing some very exciting uh, critiques and, you know, hopefully showing us the way out of the mm. forever war era. And dare I say it, you know, can we think of a future that's more uh, peaceful? Um, I mean, that's somewhere I'd like to live. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us here today. I certainly look forward to reading the book once it gets published. Um, and if any of the listeners are interested in your work and what's going on here in the NYU's Culture of War and the Post-War Research Collaborative, I'll make sure to get links written into the text that's linked to this podcast so readers or listeners can find out more and there will also be some links to some of the articles you have written on this topic. So once again, thank you for participating. Thanks so much, Christine. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Okay. I don't know how I stopped this thing. Oh, oh there.